Well, good evening. Thank you. This evening, we're going to be in the book of Romans in the sixth chapter, studying here. We've been kind of approaching Romans one chapter at a time, not really doing every single verse, but approaching it, getting, getting the idea behind each chapter. If we did the whole, every verse, we'd be here for a long, long time going through this. And so at different times, I'll approach this text in different places within it. But this evening, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 6. And what we have been talking about in this book up to this point has been justification. Now, justification is going to be talked about in this book, uh, in this chapter, but we're also switching gears into the idea, the topic of sanctification. We've talked a lot about Abram, Abraham being justified by faith. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and now we're getting into at the point we were justified and how that leads into sanctification. Um, as Church of Christ, I don't think Romans 6 is foreign to many of us at all. I think a lot of us have been here before, have studied this before, have studied with others here before. And so I think that this is a perfect topic for a Sunday night and a Wednesday night crowd, and I'll tell you why. Because Romans chapter 6 was written to Christians, about Christians and what we have as Christians. This section of Scripture was not written uh, primarily to convert lost people. Paul was not writing this to the lost. He was writing this to the church there at Rome, reminding them of what they have in Christ and at that moment that they had become Christians. So that's why I say this is a good time. Of course, there's principles here that we can use and teach and should use and teach about what it means to become a Christian. But this is for Christians primarily. This is for you and I who are Christians. In chapter 6 through 8, we're switching, like I said, this idea into sanctification, but how we become Christ-like and how our sins have been conquered and how we continue to overcome sin by the blood of Jesus, how we continue to get rid of the grasp that sin comes with our lives or that has on our lives. You and I, whenever we became Christians, the moment we became Christians, did we ever stop being tempted by sin altogether at that exact moment? No. No, we didn't. And so even though the penalty of sin has gone away with, which is what we're going to talk about, we still have this problem of dealing with the temptation, the, the grasp, the sins, uh, the power of sin, perhaps we might say, but I like the grasp of sin that it has to say it that way. But look in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. This is the perfect backdrop to what we're studying. Romans 6, uh, 5, verse 20 and 21, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When God gave the law, when God was giving this through Moses, perhaps that's the law that it is that we're talking about. I think it is. Trespass increased all the more. What does he mean by that? He means that sins were made more known when God was laying out the difference between right or wrong plainly for us to see. Sin became more evident for us to see. But does that matter to a point of sin increasing like this? No, because it doesn't matter how many sins you have in your life. The point is if you sinned once, you're lost. 
and at the same time of realizing how much sin there is in your life, when we realize how bad it is and we realize the penalty of sin and the grasp that it has on our lives, we realize how much more we are in need of a Savior, how much more we are in need of the mercy of God. And so the backdrop of Romans 6 is this idea that grace does not reign in sin, but grace reigns in a righteous life. In fact, his so what, his therefore, is going to come in verse 12 of chapter 6 that we're going to read that he's leading up to. So he starts out in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The objection that they might have up to this point is, well, of course, you know, we're, we're covered, right, by the blood of the Lamb. We're, we're saved. And so God saving us, Christ saving us, wouldn't it make sense then that if we did keep sinning, sinning that grace would pile up and pile up and be even better? But that kind of teaching is absolutely wrong and terrible. That would be God encouraging people to sin, and that doesn't make any sense at all. The idea of that teaching is come to God so that you can be saved from your sin and sin more with a clear conscience. That's not the goal when we come to God. That's not the idea that's supposed to be had here. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Those of you with the King James will have uh, God forbid there. Now, this is a time when I get to pick on King James a little bit because God is not there in the Greek. It says, may it not be, or as my version says, uh, by no means. So, fun fact. Now, later here in a few seconds, my ESV will get something wrong. So, you know, one and one will be even, don't worry. But it quite literally reads, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3 through 4, he says, do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Do you not know? This is a rhetorical question. Or it should be for Christians, right? It should be for you and I. He's reminding us of things that we should be aware of as Christians. Basic principles of Christianity. He says, verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of of life. Paul tells them, and he tells us, when we died to sin. And they already know this. It's not a brand new teaching. For many of us, it's not a brand new teaching. And if this is a brand new teaching for you tonight, I hope you really listen to this, because this is where we see where we become Christians, at the point that we take on Christ, that we put on Christ in baptism, is what he says here. Baptism into death, verse 4. Baptism into Christ's death? Yes. Baptism into our death? Yes, as well. Our old sin, our old sinful self, having died that moment, it's done away with, hung on the cross with him, resulting into the death of sin's penalty. Chapter 5, verse 1, when we talked about being justified, and we talked right before that in chapter 4 of Abraham being justified. Justification is a legal term. To be justified, the, the jargon for it is to be made just as if I'd never sinned. And it's a legal term. The penalty of sin, sin comes with a legal problem. There's a penalty, and the penalty is death. Once we are in Christ, the penalty is gone away with. We have been justified, acquitted, cleared of all guilt and shame because of what Christ has done. And we see that at this point, this is when the penalty is done away with. When that death is done away with, into death, 
in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, you and I are too. It's the moment. Baptism then is the moment that places us into Christ. Of course, we might be familiar as well with Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, right? Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptize into the name of. Quite literally meaning not into the possession of, that's true, another teaching from another text, but into the authority of, the authority, the sphere, the domain of Christ. Exiting the sphere, the authority, the power of sin and getting into the sphere, the authority, the power of Jesus instead. There's this transferring of when we come to Christ in baptism, we are joined with Him. Our old self died, sin hung on the cross. We have been raised into this new authority, this new life with Christ. All because of what He did on the cross. And at that moment of baptism is the moment that I know these things are taking place here. He's reminding you and I of this, of what we should know. He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. I love how Romans 6 here, even though it's not to non-Christians primarily, the principles are still there of how we see basically this, this reenactment of the death, the burial, and the resurrection in, it, in baptism. Our old self dies, we're buried under the water, we come out, we're raised in newness of life just as Christ was raised from the grave. It's a beautiful picture that's painted there. And we know that it's present. Present sins forgiven, future sins forgiven, so long if we remain faithful. Verse 6, we know. I circled that in my Bible. I hope that you will too. Especially because this is going to lead to the big so what in verse 11. This is just a reminder the big teaching's coming here in just a second. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. When was our old self crucified? When we met him in baptism. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Remember before in verse 21, sin reigned in death. But since our old self has died, boy, the sin's gone. We're no longer dead. We are raised Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Up to this point, what is it that we see the implications of the text? Not necessarily the purpose. Again, remember, the purpose is to remind these Christians, but the implications, the principles in the text about baptism here. Baptism, of course, quite literally, baptizo means by immersion. How we got the word baptism, by the way, it's not a direct translation. It's a transliteration, which means across literature. Translation of baptism is immersion. Well, when the King James Bible... Oh, sorry, King James getting another knock on it. Sorry. When the King James Bible was being written, we were not immersing, or they were not immersing. They were sprinkling or dipping, perhaps. And so we were, when we were writing it for the king, we realized, oh, no, we, we wrote something wrong. So what do we do? Well, instead of translating it immersion, baptizo, we tr decided to transliterate it baptism. That's how we got the word. Uh, at least that's my understanding of it. And so baptism, yes, being quite literally immersed, plunged, uh, not fully, uh, or excuse me, fully dipped. Baptism is also the point when we are united with Christ. It's the only time 
There's no other time, there's no other place when we are united in his death and in his life. There is no other point that we come into contact with the blood of Jesus, only at baptism. And so, yes, that makes baptism essential for salvation. Why are we reminded of this as Christians? Why are they reminded of this? Why are we reminded of this? I like to think about Hebrews chapter 5, if you want to turn there, hold your place, of course. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Beginning there. These are, you could say, fundamentals, basics of Christianity. Now, I'm not talking, saying that they're, uh, you know, irrelevant or anything like that. I'm not trying to downplay what they are, but I'm talking about them being core basics. The core basics are what a lot of what we do revolves around. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and the oracles of God. I think this falls under that in in the same category, the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For whoever, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice and distinguish good from evil. So why are they being reminded? Why are we being reminded? Because at a certain point, you and I, we should be able to teach and tell about these same things. If I am saved as a Christian, I ought to be able to simply put to somebody how I became saved. Because I have to know how I become saved in order to become saved. And if I know how I'm saved, then I can tell others how I'm saved, right? There's the logic that follows. Sometimes we make it too hard. We don't have to give the whole uh, exposition. We don't have to give a whole four-point, three-point sermon, whatever, to somebody. You remember I love uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What did she know about Jesus? Just what he told, him in that, or told her in that conversation. You remember what happened afterwards? She, rent, she went and ran and told the whole town, basically, and brought the whole town back. Let me tell you about this guy. They were excited. She was excited. She made it so simple. How did the New Testament church in Acts grow so fast? Yes, because, of course, you know, they had uh, miracles, things like that taking place. But that's not the primary reason. The primary reason for a lot of it was because they understood what they had and they were excited about what they had. They were passionate about what they had. And since they were passionate about it, It's so easy for them to go out and tell what they're passionate about. Every one of us have some kind of passion, have some kind of love of something or some great like, whether it be a TV show or a ball game or whatever. And whenever those things take place, what do we do? We find ourselves talking about them. It's not hard to talk about baseball when I love baseball, right? It's not hard for me to talk about my job when I love my job. Don't make it too hard to talk about your Christianity. Don't make it too hard to talk about how you became a Christian, what Christ has done for you, and how easy it is for someone else to have the exact same thing. So, yes, there is a time when I ought to be telling these things. That's one reason why he's writing this. But also to remind us that now that you have been escaped death because of Christ, you have been rescued out of death, now you need to live. That's the point of Romans chapter 6 that we're about to read. It's not just, here's a little quick passage about when you're saved. 
But now what? So what, right? That's the so what, the therefore, the wherefore. Here in verse 9 and 10, he says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again die. Death no longer has dominion over him. And if that's true for Christ and you're in his death and you're in his life, what does that mean for you? For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, chapter 11, or chapter 6, verse 11, the therefore. So, you must consider. Does that sound like a suggestion? Or does that sound like an imperative, a command? You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Remember chapter 5 verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Let the grace of God reign through a righteous life. I am to be living for God, not acting as if I'm dead in my sin and still in sin but living confidently for him. This is a command. It's a present imperative, meaning it's true now and it's true on going. Start doing it now. I love that word there in verse 11. You must consider. I'd underline that. We've studied that the past two studies in Romans, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, because it's the same word used in chapter 4, verse 3. The same word when he says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, there's your same word, considered and counted there to him as righteousness. What does counted mean that we studied? It means gifted, accredited, a gift that I don't deserve, that I did not earn. And so here, it's the same word being used. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but it's been gifted to you. Because You think that because you were baptized, as he said, that you earned your salvation? No. No, God said, here's the gift and here's how you unwrap it. And so I went. That's the idea there. I didn't earn it. It was freely gifted to me. And so I must consider as well what God has made me. Not just, you know, think about it, but it is a definite. Whether I feel it or not, it doesn't matter how I feel. Scripture says that you're dead to sin's penalty. And so I should think it and live like it. What I'm also saying that I've said before, and perhaps some of us have said in our lives, I hope I make it to heaven one day. That kind of language can, it, it has no place in the life of a Christian. Because John also writes that you can know that you're saved. And here we can know that we're saved. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. There is no guesswork for a Christian whether or not we're saved. There is only a guarantee of salvation. Isn't that great? Exactly. And so then we should live like it, right? We should live like we're alive and not dead in our sins. We should live unashamedly for God as he said in chapter 1, verse 16, right? Not ashamed of the gospel. All this is tying into itself, right? All this is leading to this point. We have been justified. We've been saved. It's guaranteed. And now we're being sanctified. We are being cleansed. We are being continually cleaned up, becoming more like Christ. So the penalty of sin is gone. It's done. I'm not dead in my sin. Now I need to work on how do I start to continue, continue to fight sin's grasp over my life. Because remember, the temptation's still there, right? Temptation is always going to be there. 
but you're going to grow in how you deal with a temptation. That's guaranteed. So how do we grow in how we deal with our temptation? The rest of chapter 6 through chapter 8. He says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself... Uh, to present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When we say instruments, we're also talking about similar language of weapons, weapons for sin or weapons for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but are under grace. And so because of what God has made me, I should confidently claim that what he has made me. There's nothing wrong with claiming humbly and, and by faith what God has designated you to be as a saved person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. The question is, do you believe that? Because <laughs> if you really believe it, you're going to live like it. If you really believe it, you're going to act like it daily. It's motivation, what we're reading, to be what he said you are to the best of your ability, to agree with God where he says that you stand, which is with him, if you have been baptized in him to become a Christian. And if, you, if we don't agree with God, and if we don't take this personally in our lives as a mission to live for him, then I'm not going to win the battles that I face every day. Because make mo no mistake, we do face them every day. Some days are, are minute, some days are, are pretty large. You never know, really. But what matters is how you start your day. What matters is that you're going to make the decision to be disciplined in Christ. He, we already said, chapter 5, verse 21, I got ahead of myself, I'm looking at my notes. <laughs> that's what happens when you get too like, into it. You don't really pay attention to your notes, but that's not a bad thing. Chapter 5, verse 21, sin reigned in death. That's where sin is king there. But grace also reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Continue to let the grace of God reign in you to be seen and shown in you. So, step one, to win all the battles is to accept what God has made about you or accept what God has made you, what he has said about you to be saved. No longer dead, no longer in my sin, but saved, so long as I continue on faithfully. Step two, offer yourselves to God. Live for God. This is not just at baptism that I offer myself to God. Whenever I say I declare Jesus to be Lord of my life, it's not just in that one moment. But it's every moment from then on. I'm signing up to say, you're the Lord of my life now and ongoing for the rest of my days. Every minute of every day. We might think God is in control, but if I'm not careful, then I find myself taking the reins, the control away from God. If I don't remind myself daily that God is in control, that I'm giving myself to God to lead, guide, and direct my life. If you offer yourself up for Him then you will be looking for opportunities to be that instrument for righteousness, as he says in verse 13 and 14. And perhaps not even just looking for opportunities, perhaps I'll even make some opportunities. Perhaps I'll, I'll be that much on the lookout. But how am I to offer myself up to God? First, I'm going to say consciously. 
consciously or intentionally, I like that word a little bit better actually, intentionally offering myself up to God, intentionally living for God. We saw that in verse 13, but look also in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, being that instrument. It's not going to happen Well, let me put it this way. It it can happen sometimes subconsciously, but it's not always like a heart muscle. We we don't control the beating of our own heart, really. It's one thing that our body takes over and does. But what do we control? We control our arms and we control our legs, right? And so in a similar way, we tell our arm muscles to move. We need to tell our own selves in every way that we possibly can to move and to live for God in every single thing that I'm doing. But we're going to uh, capitalize on that in just a second. The second way I'd say is, of course, continually. Look in verse 15 and 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are under law, or not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the world will look at this and say, I don't want to be a slave at all. (laughs) And I'll say, well, guess what? You're either a slave of sin and everything that comes with it, and that's a terrible slave master. Or you look at the great father, the great master, the best of the best. It's not so much like you're a slave. Remember uh, Luke 15, story of the prodigal son? What did the, when, I love when it says, when he came to his senses, what did the son say that he was going to do? Uh, He worked up his whole story, right? He was getting ready to go back to his father and say, just make me a slave. You know, at the most, please just make me a slave because that's so much better than even being away from you. That's the idea there. But of course, when he got to the father, he didn't give him a chance to even got that out. He made him a son instead. He restored him to that sonship. And so we're drawing this big, this big distinction between the two, but continually every day until Jesus comes or until I'm brought home, whichever comes first, I'm going to continually live for God and I'm going to do it comprehensively as well. I think that comes back to verse 13. Do not present your members to sin. Talking about your whole being of who you are, all all of who and what you are to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life because you have, he says, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And I say comprehensively to say, make your list. Present yourself comprehensively to God. Uh, Some have said that it's a really good practice to pray and to start listing things off, everything about who you are, from your thumbs to your lips to your brains to your emotions. And sometimes it seems a little bit silly. But I'm not just going to flippantly say, uh, yeah, I I give myself to you today, God, at the beginning of the day. I'm going to be consciously aware of every aspect of my life with my reputation, with my dollar, with my emotions, with my pride. Because if I surrender every bit of that consciously, intentionally to God, then I'm going to be on high alert for the rest of the day when one of those might be facing some kind of battle in some way. And I'm going to approach it in the right way with God. If I go through that list, and even though I've done that, even though I've started the day off praying in this way, I still have to choose to fight those battles as they come, fight against that temptation with God to live for God. Um, 
had had a kid actually uh, say a prayer like this, or he wrote this prayer. We, we were studying this, and this was the prayer that came out of this. I thought y'all would like this. A prayer to start the day right, from Romans chapter 6. I accept that you call me saved, and because of that, surrendering myself to you, I give you my time, my pride, my money, my emotions, my thoughts, my hands, my lips. The list goes on and on and on, especially if we are doing it comprehensively, naming every single thing about who I am. But in all of this, what we're doing is preparing to succeed before the battle even begins. I'm not going to wait for the battle. I'm not going to wait for the temptation to strike before I go to God about it. How do you think that Jesus was so successful in his time here? when he was tempted in every way as we were. Luke highlights the prayer life of Jesus uh, better than the other Gospels. He's, it seemed he'd start the day, the middle of the day, the end of the day, and of course, whenever he was tempted, he'd go off in prayer. All of these instances, he was going to God first and in the middle of what is going on. This is all talking about what we talked about last week, taking up our cross, denying ourselves daily, And that's the idea of what's going on here. I'm denying my full self. I'm giving my full self over to God. Wholehearted obedience, wholehearted dedication. Every minute of every day, not just daily, but every minute of the day. Daily battles and temptations are lost whenever we don't do things intentionally as Christians. When we leave things perhaps up to chance or we don't include God as much as we should. But you know, God can still take a person take our imperfections when we do fail and work with us. So no, failure is not the end of the world, but I need to repent and come back to him. I need to get back in line with him. I know that I'm saved and I want to hold on to that salvation, that gift that he's given me. And he tells me how. He tells me to keep fighting the fight, to keep offering myself up to him. And he's going to talk more about that later in Romans chapter 12 as well. But we'll win more battles giving God the glory. And I personally think that we'll be happier as Christians when we do these things. I'm not one to preach on happiness and things like that. But we'll find ourselves having a less miserable life when we offer all these things up to God, surrender these things to God, and giving ourselves over to Him from our emotions to our physical things to the unseen things. And the reason why is because when we do that, we continue and start to win more and more against the temptations. And it's really hard to be discouraged when you keep winning with God. But there are times when we need to rely on God so much more. Some of the times are hard. Some of the times, some of the days are not as hard. Regardless, we succeed by God and we succeed by His power and His grace. So if you're here this evening, we've covered a lot of ground. A lot of ground of what it takes to become a Christian, but also what it takes to remain a Christian, the process of sanctification, the process of being justified. And if you need to respond in any way to any of these, let us know as we stand together and sing. Oh,
shall carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, I'll follow him. Should be seated. Is there anyone here tonight needs to partake of the Lord's Supper? We have one, two, three. We have three. If you would turn to page number 105. 105, we'll sing the first and last verse of this song in our table. Number 105. <clears throat> when we meet as we Surpassing wondrous love for you and me. While we feast, Christ gently whispers, Do this in my memory. Feast divine, all else surpassing. Precious blood for you and me. While we sub Christ gently whispers, do this in my memory. Precious feast, all else surpassing wondrous love for you and me while we feast christ gently whispers do this in my memory with you please father we're so thankful for the blessings that you've given us today we thank you for this memorial feast that we're able father to partake of on a weekly basis that continually reminds us of everything that you've done for us through christ and that he took our sins in his body went to calvary and died for us paid the debt that we owed he was buried and resurrected on the third day for our justification. He's ascended into heaven and has made the promise to return to us one day to receive us. And so today we remember these things and we give you thanks and praise for all that you've done for us. And as we partake of this bread, we pray that we'll be reminded of these things and we'll give you the glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
Merci, Hans. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to come together and hear another portion of your word. Lord, we thank you for this fruit of the vine that represents the blood shed on the cross. Be with those who take it, who will take it in a manner well pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Bible teaches us that upon the first day of the week, the disciples set by and store over them the things that God would prosper them with. And of course, as Christians, we've been so bountifully blessed by not only our spiritual blessings, but a lot of our physical blessings. And so we thank him for that. And we show our gratitude and our love for him by giving back our lives and the things that we possess, a measure of those things. So tonight... We have the opportunity to give as we've been prospered. The Bible says that uh, it's not accepted or God uh, gives us that opportunity and that we uh, are blessed by not what we have, but uh, I'm all mixed up. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's accepted according to what we receive, not with what we do not have. And so uh, tonight, uh, you have the opportunity to give back to the Lord as you've been prospered. You would bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you've given us today, for the life that you've uh, blessed us with, with so many wonderful things. We realize that, Father, you're always there for us, and you provide for us our daily needs and the things that we have. As we have this opportunity to give back, let us be, Father, do so with a cheerful heart as we purposed in our hearts that we give you the thanks for everything that we have. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
This will be put out on the table for you to give.